to In the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. Our first question today comes in this form. Uh, Somebody had written, Reading in Revelations, we know the time for the rapture is close. Why after your sermons do you not invite people to come up and accept Jesus into their lives? This is that other question that it asked me, um, you know, why we don't give altar calls. And and, uh, it's not that we don't. It's that we just, you know, in a small church, to give an altar call every week, I could do that. Hopefully every week I can give a an opportunity for people to come to know the Lord, whether it comes up in an altar call. Altar calls are not necessarily mandated in Scripture. It's it's a it's a decision that someone needs to make in their own personal in their own personal life. It there is a coming forward, there is a, a speaking out, there is a testifying, there is a confession that needs to be made. And therein lies the heart behind an altar call is that by standing up and coming forward, you're basically declaring that, hey, I am I, I want Christ in my life. I want my soul to be saved. I want I want to be on right ground with God. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we, we do have altar calls. But just as it isn't necessary to go to a Billy Graham crusade, you know, and now I'm kind of dating myself on that, but to go to a Billy Graham crusade in order to, you know, get saved so you can go forward, you know, that that's not necessary to do that. Now, many people, many thousands you know, of people and probably in the millions of people have come forward in those con- in those crusades. Uh, that doesn't necessarily make you saved. You know, an altar call doesn't make you saved. Uh, what makes you saved is Jesus Christ. I mean, it's it's the genuineness and the sincerity that you come before Christ and ask Him to come into your life, ask Him to re- remove your sins from you. And and so um, there's a lot of people. That will, I believe, in the Matthew chapter seven talks about. You know, many will come to me in that day. We, you know, we've talked about that before. Will come to me in that day. Jesus says, many will come in that day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, you know, why am I getting cast out? Why, why is it that I am not a part of your family? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do many mighty wonderful things in your name? Didn't I do all these things in your? I, I did miracles in your name. You know, some might come and say, hey, I went to church. I went forward in a Billy Graham concert or a crusade. I went forward at Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship. And they had an altar call, you know, and I went forward there. Why am I not saved? Well, there's going to be people that aren't saved that that they went forward. They did an act. And that's basically what it was. It was an act. It wasn't a genuine move. In your heart, you you never truly accepted Christ because that's what Jesus says. Depart from me. I never knew you. Not, hey, I knew you once and we had a relationship. We were tight at one time, but you're gone. You know, I mean, you took off. He didn't say that. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. We had no relationship. And see, only you and God know whether or not you're saved. And so an altar call isn't going to change that. What's going to change you is Christ, is you coming before honestly and openly and humbly before an almighty God and saying, God, I am a sinner and I need saved. I need my sins forgiven. I cannot get to heaven on my own merit. I can't get there. I need you. 
I need the gift that you gave to me. I need the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross and his death for me and my sin. I need, I need the, 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 the Jesus who you turned your back on when he hung on a cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I need that Jesus in my life. He did that for me. If you've never come to a place in your life where you haven't accepted Christ as your own Lord and personal Savior, and sometimes we can say that very quickly because those words come out of our mouth, especially out of a pastor's mouth very quickly, right? Hey, accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and personal Savior. Let's move on. You know, It's something that can quickly come out of your mouth, but there are no truer words ever spoken. There are no uh, words ever spoken that have such significance in every single individual's life. You have got to come face to face with that. You have got to deal with that question. Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Um, and, and so an altar call isn't going to change that. It does give an opportunity for that very, first, that very first step for you to actually stand up and say, hey, I'm confessing Christ. You know, we, we, one of the things that, you know, I've come from large churches. I mean, the smallest church I'd ever been a part of until I came to this church was 1,300 members. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? 1,300 members. Um, it's nuts, you know, uh, you know, I went to school, went to work for the Bible college out in California. And, and you know, I, I went to Harvest Christian Fellowship with Greg Laurie out in California, you know. And that thing had 18, 20,000 people at the time, you know. And, um, uh, and, you know, was a part of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa on staff with them at the Bible college and what have you. And that was, a, I think, a 30,000 member church at the time. Went to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. When I left there, you know, it was at 12,000, 13,000, and got up to like 25,000. You know, I mean, they've been to part of these big, big churches, you know, lots of churches. And, you know, uh, my singles ministry was, you know, the singles ministry that I was a part of, and Kevin was a part of it also, you know, that I, that I, I had the honor of leading was probably 15 times larger, well, I don't even know how many people, you know, it was. I mean, I know that we we uh we uh would have quite a few how many how many people would we have on a Friday night, honey, for a or Kevin and you know, how many people would we have on a Friday night for a you know, a, a singles event, you know? Yeah, two, three hundred, you know, people. Um it's crazy, you know. And and so it was it was large just in the singles ministry. And so the thing is, is that the reason I say all that is that in large churches, it's it's easy to have an altar call. The problem with that, though, also that I do see in a, in a large church altar call setting is that it's easy for people to stand up because they're moved by the emotion of a moment, but not really having a true change in their heart. Um, you know, I mentioned Billy Graham Crusades. You know, Billy Graham Crusades found out that a year after, this was a study that was done back in the 80s, but a year after, um, all of the people that came forward in a Billy Graham Crusade, one year after all of those people came forward, how many were still walking with the Lord? There was 8%. 
And so an altar call didn't save anybody. An altar call didn't change you know, a whole lot of people's hearts. It changed eight people's, 8% of the people's heart. And there was probably more than that, but I don't want to you know, cram down on that. You know, but, but those were the statistics. We tried to do something to not let that happen, you know, let people fall through the cracks. We didn't want that to happen you know, when I was over in Fort Lauderdale. But here's the thing. You, you, you have a person who comes forward. There has to be a change in their life. There has to be a change in their heart. There has to be a one-on-one with Christ. And, and hopefully every single one of you in this room, everyone that's listening to this, you've had that encounter with Christ. Because if not, you will see Jesus as your judge and not your Lord. And, and so I want anybody who ever hears me or ever sits under any kind of teaching to know that you're saved. I want you to be saved. I want it to be genuine. I want it to be genuine. And so, yes, we are in the end times. We are definitely in the end times. And as I said in uh, worship time, if there ever was a time to be genuine in your faith, today's the day. Next question. The next question is, is there an evangelistic value to the Left Behind series of books to help with sharing with non-Christians? Um, uh, that's a good question. That is a good question. Um, what the Left Behind books do? You remember we talked about um, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, which trib last week. I don't know that we got all the way through it, but you know, uh, obviously trib means tribulation, a tribulation period. Um, all of these... Uh, viewpoints will um, attribute it to a seven-year period. Um, there are those that will like to break it down and say, well, you know, uh, it, actually the, the Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years. And, and I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, the Tribulation period is a seven-year period. Jesus talks about the Great Tribulation, you know, and, and that is that last three and a half periods because what you thought was bad in the first three and a half years, which is horrendous, it's horrific. Uh, it, it's the second three and a half year period is uh, off the charts. You know, unless Jesus said, listen, unless what God would have shortened those days, no flesh would have been saved. I mean, everybody would have been dusted off the face of the earth. And, and so um, Jesus knows how dangerous those days are, how ruthless those days are, how hard those days are. But as you go through and you look in the, in the, the book of Revelation, what you'll find is that three or four times during the midst of the tribulation period, the people that are going through the tribulation period, that are going through these judgments, which as we step back as a second, for a second, remember, we talked about this last week where people say, well, Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so that's the tribulation. We are in this tribulation. We're always living in the tribulation. It's not a seven and a half year, or it's not a seven year period. It's not two, three and a half year periods. It's, it's ever since Jesus has gone. I mean, he said in this world you'll have tribulation. Well, as I stated last week, that tribulation is a small t. Yes, we will encounter tribulation upon this earth. 
But the key to that verse is Jesus says, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What Jesus is referencing, and I think that any of you, if you look at the structure of that verse, Jesus is saying, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. World is spoken of twice. Where is the tribulation originating from? That Jesus is talking that you're, and you and I are going to encounter. In this world, you will encounter tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. What's Jesus saying? Hey, be good, be chill out, know this. If you're mine, I've got you. I've got you. Because in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's, the world is going to do everything it can to knock you down, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You don't have to be drug all the way down because I am here. I am your sustaining power. I am your God. I am your Savior. I am your leader. I'm your chief. I'm the Lord of Lords. I'm the King of Kings. I am in your heart. I am your Savior. And, and so here's the thing. In the world that Jesus is talking about, he's saying that the, that the tribulation is originating, that we're all going to incur as a Christian, it's originating from the world. Now, there are three different things that are against you and I, right? There's three different things as a Christian that are against you and I. You know what they are? They're the, the world is one of them, right? There is Satan. That's pretty safe to say, right? But then there's also exactly, as Ross just said, it's your flesh. There's three things that are against you, that are constantly hitting you. It's the world, Satan, and your flesh. Those three things are going to constantly come against you until Christ comes back. Jesus says, be of good cheer. I've overcome all that. I overcome Satan. I've overcome your flesh. I've overcome the world. I've overcome all those things. If, if you die to you, it's no longer about your flesh. It's about me, right? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So now the life that I now live, I live for Christ. I don't live for me. And so it's no longer about my flesh. When my flesh creeps back up, Jesus reminds me, hey, wait a minute, I've got this. I got your back. I've got you. You are mine. Your flesh is not to rule and dictate over you. You are to rule and dictate over the flesh. And so, the, and, and Satan, I've, I've overcome him. I've overcome him. So these three things that are going to come against us, Jesus says, I got you. I can, I can take you through this time. I've overcome that stuff. That's little t. But when we get into the book of Revelation, especially from verses or chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, we see a, a tribulation period that's coming down upon the face of the earth. It's a seven-year period. It's horrendous time, that, of which the second half is even more horrendous than the first. The problem is, and the issue is, not the problem, but the issue is that must be dealt with is that where does this tribulation originate from? Is it Satan? No. Is it the flesh? No. Is it the world? No. All of this stuff is happening down upon those things, but it's none of those things are originating from any of those areas. It's not coming from Satan. It's not coming from the world. It's not coming from your flesh. It's coming and originating from heaven. Now, yes, Satan, God is using you know, the, the enemy. He'll even use the, the, the demonic forces that are out there 
to impact the world around us, but they can only just as you remember what the what the uh, uh, the Bible talks about in in uh, I think it's uh, uh, Proverbs chapter is it five where Solomon he's writing he says you know you told the sea to come this far and no further. I, does that I, that kind of if you just think about that that blows my mind. That God just says, okay, sea, come up to this far, but don't go any farther. And, and so that's why the sea just stops right there on the shoreline. God said, that's it. No more. That's where you go. Well, it's the same kind of a thing of these judging demons that are coming down. They're originating from heaven. God is letting them loose. He still hold them, held them in store for this opportunity. Boom. Here it is. I'm giving you what you want. I'm giving you what it is that is a taste of hell. I'm giving you a taste of judgment. I'm giving you a taste of of harshness. I'm giving you a taste of heavenly reality, of eternal, not heavenly, but eternal reality. And so all of these judgments from uh, chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation that pour out, they all originate from heaven and they come down upon what? A Christ-rejecting world. As we finished up last week, you remember we finished in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You remember what Paul talked about uh, there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, listen, he said... God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if this is God's wrath being poured out from heaven on a Christ-rejecting world, if the tribulation is that, why would we as Christians endure God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting, amongst the Christ-rejecting? We didn't reject Christ. What that would be called is double jeopardy. A spiritual double jeopardy. Here in our country, what we have is that if you're tried for a crime uh, and you are acquitted or you are found not guilty, you can't be retried for the same crime again. You can't do it. You know, you've been tried for murder. You've been found not guilty. You're free to go. A week later, they can't come in and say, hey, wait a minute, we're going to charge you for murder again. And because that would be called double jeopardy. It's the same kind of a thing with the Lord. It's not that the Lord took uh, you know, a, a, a suggestion out of the American politics. No, the American politics took an understanding out from the Lord. There's no such thing as double jeopardy. You don't, you don't get punished for something that has already been punished. And so you might sit there and say, well, when, when was my sin punished for? You know, when was my sin judged And that would be a good question. That's a question, hopefully, that some of you are asking right now. Well, when was my sin judged? Your sin was judged when Jesus hung on a cross. When he hung on that cross, your sin was judged. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for your sin and my sin. Why? Why? Would God pour out his wrath upon me again for my sin? I didn't reject Christ. And so those chapters, the tribulation period, I believe that the view that, that 
I lean towards and I believe is biblical is the pre-tribulational rapture view. I believe that we as Christians will be raptured out of here before God begins to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Why? As Paul says. You know, he says, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant, my brothers, concerning those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are dead in Jesus. For this we say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord Jesus will by no means precede those who are dead. And that's speaking about you and I. Okay? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Who shout? The voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up that word caught up is the word harpazo in the in the greek it's in latin in latin it's rapturos where we get our word our english word rapture from that's where we get this word hey the christians are going to be raptured and so we can put that word in here rapturos which we understand as rapture that's the word that so identifies with what this is saying then we who are alive and remain, speaking of you and I as Christians, shall be raptured up together with them in the air or in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so therefore comfort one another with these words. And then he goes on and he says, so, so comfort of these times and seasons, you don't have a need for me to write these things because you see them happening around you. But know this and take courage he says in verse 9 of the next chapter, God didn't appoint you to wrath, Christians, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe we're out of here. And I know that we're going to touch on the seven churches of, of uh, Revelation here um, soon. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but we'll touch on the seven churches in Revelation. But the seven churches, in, in fact, turn with me. If you have your Bible and you want to turn with me, you're welcome to do that. But you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to give you kind of a, a quick little uh, proof text for myself or, or a, uh, a help that I use. If you're looking at chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, and you remember what Revelation is, Revelation is the unveiling. It's God is going to remove the curtain. The stage is set. The final curtain is opening up. I love the title of uh, my pastor, Chuck Smith's book. He had a, a book called The Final Curtain, you know, and it talks about end times events. And, and uh, it's a it's a, a cool title to a book, and that's what he's talking about. It's a, it's a revelation. It's the final curtain. It's opening up. Um, but as you, if you were to read all the way through chapter one, what you would see is is uh, John, uh, who was the young John, but now you know this is this is many 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 years later. This is written around ninety ninety five somewhere around there. John is is an older man now. 
and uh, he's he's uh, uh, been uh, ostracized. He's been exiled. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I said ostracized, but exiled. Thank you, Ross. Exiled to the island of Patmos uh, because John wouldn't die. They tried to kill him. They tried to give him poison. Didn't work. They tried to boil him in oil. He didn't cook. So they said, just put him over on that island and let's forget about him. And so they did. And John wrote this unveiling, the final curtain over there as the Lord gave him vision. And so in chapter one, what you see is that John is is hearing from the Lord. He's hearing from the Lord. Uh, And then as you near the end of the, the first chapter... It says in verse 17, and this is just after John turning and seeing this voice that spoke with him, and it gives a, a description of what Jesus looks like. At first, only, first and only description that we see of Jesus in the Bible, and I think that that's kind of interesting that, that kind of this has nothing to do with our study other than just the, the plain curiosity of it. You know, have you ever noticed that none of the Gospels and none of the epistles ever say, hey, Jesus was about 6'2", he weighed about 170, he was, you know, he was this complexion, he had this color hair, he was this, he was that, he was... They don't say that. They don't give a description of Jesus. But here in heaven, what you see is a picture of Christ. And it's pretty terrifying to see. And John's looking at it, and it's pretty wild. Uh, he doesn't say he's 6'2 or anything like that, but he sees a heavenly picture of Christ, a heavenly description of Christ. It says, and so when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet, John says, as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, and if you didn't believe that this is Jesus who's just been described up here with all the different you know, his hair and his, his, uh, you know, all of the, his feet and his eyes and all of that stuff, um, describing who he is. If you didn't think that that was Jesus, this should, should put an end to your, your understanding there, your, your confusion there. He laid a hand, his right hand on me, John, and he said to me, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. Who is the first and who is the last? Well, that would be a description of who? God. That's a description of God, right? A description of God. Okay, in verse 18, he continues on his own description. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Okay, now wait a minute. Now who is this speaking of? Was God ever alive and then dead and then rose again? No, Jesus. What did Jesus just say he himself is? I am God. I am the first. I am the Alpha. And I am the Omega. I was. I was killed. And I rose again. That's who I am. Jesus is God. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I have the keys. We sometimes can become so fearful of hell and Satan. And I don't mean to go out there and tempt him and do things like that. That's stupid. Don't do that. Don't tempt him. Uh, we, we learn in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel didn't even bring a reviling accusation against Lucifer, but he said, the Lord rebuke you, right? And so here's a guy on equal footing of, of Satan, I believe, is Michael. I don't want to get into that, but I believe that there were three archangels. These were the three, you know, leaders of the angels in heaven. Obviously, God being the ultimate leader of all of them. But 
three angels spoken of in Scripture that are archangels. I believe Michael was one of them. I believe Gabriel was the other, and I believe that Lucifer was the third. Lucifer became proud in his heart. Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 28, and you'll see the description of what happened to him on that day when pride lifted him up. It said, you were in the garden. You were in Eden. Every precious stone was your covering. The voice that you spoke with was as a full orchestra. Think about it for a second. Right now, you're hearing me in a monosyllabic voice, if that just made sense. I think that's the right word. You hear me with one tone. It's like one D, you know? But Ezekiel 28 says, when Satan, or when Lucifer spoke, it was like a full orchestra was playing. His voice was beautiful. It was entrancing. It was awesome. You were perfect in every way, God said about him, until iniquity was found in you. What was the iniquity? Five times he says, I'm tired of being subordinate to God. I want to take his place. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High God. That's not his place. His place was to be an archangel. And as we move on into Revelation chapter uh, uh, 12, what you're going to find is that Satan, that dragon, that old serpent of old, the devil, he drew a third of the stars out of heaven with him. Stars are oftentimes... uh, known and understood as angels. Lucifer took those who were under his influence and took them with him. He influenced them away from the Lord. I believe that that's where we get our our demons. Lucifer, the devil, convincing his third of those that he was in ranking control over in heaven, convincing them that he can do it. And they followed him. And they were damned for eternity. And then God prepared a hell for them. That speaks about that in Matthew chapter 25. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. God prepared a place for the devil and his angels where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Here's the thing. Lucifer. He he convinced the third of the angels to follow him. Well, next time you freak out that the devil is so powerful and he's making you do things that you don't want to do, just know this. Not only do you have Michael and Gabriel still on your side, they have two-thirds of the angels still working before you and working under the direct command of God. As if we have two-thirds of the angels that are as powerful as Satan and his, and his minions that followed him, we've got twice as many as Satan has. And if that weren't enough, then for goodness sakes, know this. The God who sits on the throne 
is your father. And when Satan tried to go and usurp his throne, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I didn't see God get up and go, batten down the hatches! Oh my goodness, what a battle, 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 battle! It says God spoke the word and he fell like lightning to the earth. We've got God on our side. There is no reason for us to freak out on demons. There's no reason for us to freak out on Satan. There's no reason for us to freak out on those things. Now, that isn't to say they're not real. But what I'm saying is don't freak out on them. They're there. Oh, but didn't you hear what the medium can do? Can't you understand what that witch can do? Don't you have the palm reader? Oh, it's amazing. Wait a minute. They're drawing their power from a third of the power of of heaven where you have two-thirds of the angels still on your side and you've got God who, who trumps it all. Sorry for using his name. But here's the thing. You've got God. There is no reason to fear the enemy. You and I have authority over that in Christ. Don't freak out. Don't freak out on the bumps in the night. Satan would love to terrify you. He did with me for a long time until God showed me, stop doing that, Don. You're making him as great as I am. He's not even close. Stop it. God set me free. That might speak to somebody in here. Somebody in here might be terrified of the night. Somebody in here might be terrified of sleeping. I know I was at one time. I'm no longer. It doesn't freak me out at all. I love nighttime now. I love to sleep. Because I'm sleeping in the rest that Christ affords to me. But here's the thing. Satan. These, these angels and, 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 and they're, they're, they're nothing more than subservient to the Lord. And so... It says that I have the keys of Hades and death. And so when we don't have to freak out on Satan. He doesn't have the keys to Hades and death. Jesus says, I do. I got him. Well, why doesn't he do something about it? Well, just like he always said to the, to the disciples. He said to his brothers. Hey, his brothers said, why don't you go up to the feast and tell them who you are? Come on. Show them who you are. His brothers got so tired of Jesus being this Messiah that they wanted him to go and kill himself and commit suicide by, by them saying, hey, go up to the feast and tell him that you're the son of God, that you're the Messiah. Go on up there. Let's see what's going to happen to you. I'm tired of hearing it. And he says, it's not my time yet. It's not my time to do that. My time's coming and I will. Mind you, those same brothers that tried to get him to do that, to, to die, actually became Christians. One of them became the head of the church in, in Jerusalem, James. The other one, I've already quoted, Book of Jude. That was his brother. They both got saved. But they weren't saved when Jesus was alive. They didn't believe in him. Here's the thing. God... Jesus has the keys of Hades and death. Why doesn't you just do something about it? Because it's not time yet. But there is time, the time is coming. But look at what he says here in verse 19. This is a key 
This is a, this is a, underline it and circle it. There's three things that you can circle in here and I want you to look at it. In verse 19 it says, Jesus is speaking to John. He says, John, I want you to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. I've got to hurry to do this because we've got to blast through this. But here's the thing. There's three things. I put four fingers up. <laughs> three things that Jesus just said, right? John, I want you to write three different things down. The things which you have seen, that's the first. The things which are, that's the second. And the things which will take place after this, that's the third. That right there, folks, I believe is the outline to the book of Revelation. That's the outline to the book of Revelation. That right there gives us a mini outline of how to understand the book of Revelation. John, I want you to write the things which you've seen, the things that are past, the things that you have seen uh, and, and that are past. These are things that have passed. That would be chapter one. The things which are, he was living in the day of the church, right? Jesus has ascended into heaven when he ascended, when he breathed on the disciples when he rose again from the dead. And the Holy Spirit entered into the disciples. When Jesus breathed on them, he, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus breathes on someone and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I'm going to guess that all of you will agree with me that that person receives the Holy Spirit, right? I, I, I would just assume that. And so here's the thing. Jesus dies, buried, raises from the dead, goes and meets the disciples. They freak out when he comes in the room and he says, Be of, hey, hey, it's just me, guys. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's the beginning of the church. There's the beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit comes and resides in the heart of the disciples and then it just flows from there as the Holy Spirit is residing in my heart and hopefully in yours also. The church is still under that second banner. John, write the things which you have seen, the things that are past, the things which are, the things that are present, and the things which will take place after these things. Okay? So, as we look at the end of this chapter, he says, he says in chapter 2, there's one more verse in chapter 1, but then he goes into chapter 2 and he begins a series of speaking and describing seven different churches in modern-day Turkey, basically, is where it is. Now, there are three applications that we can look at in this, but the biggest and foremost application should be, and always should be, is speaking to the actual church that was there. Okay, There were actually seven churches that God was speaking to there in Turkey. And, and, and so he speaks about these seven churches. They were actual churches. They were local churches. But I think that there, as you look at this, you can see that there are also a secondary application. I believe that there's three applications that we can take from chapters 2 and 3 which describe the seven churches. The first and foremost and most important understanding 
is the local application of each and every one of those churches that Jesus deals with. The first one was Ephesus. We talked about it in worship. Right? And, and so he speaks of seven different churches and they were all actual churches. But then there's another application that as you look at these churches and you see their, the description of these churches and you see what it is that they dealt with, what it is that they were, were dealing with in their church and what they struggled with and what they, what they uh, were focused on and the subject matter of those churches, you can go back in history and you can prophetically see, or you can go back in history and see of historical times where these eras of the church were dealing with issues. If you were to go look at Church of Ephesus, you'd look at that being the first church. It was the apostolic church. Very quickly after Jesus rose and, 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 you know, into heaven and the church began scattering because finally the angels said, hey, go about the business that the Lord has called you to do. Don't sit here and just wait and look for him in the air. Go and do what you're supposed to do. And as the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem, it was a very few short years before cogs in the wheel began to be in monkey wrenches, being thrown into the monkey, you know, into, into the spoke, you know, of, of the church where things started to deteriorate within the church heresies began to come into the church false teachers began to come into the church uh, abusers of their positions began to come into the church sheeps and wolf or wolves in sheep's clothing uh, begin to come into the church they they come into the church very quickly and so in the first church church of ephesus you know, you can look at that and see that, that that speaks of the apostolic age, the apostolic church. When the beginning of the church began, I know your deeds. I know the things that you do. I know that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, those who lord it over the, the congregation. But there's one thing that I have against you. You've left your first love. And so in the very onset of the church, we see the church turning their back on the Lord. Beginning to lose their flame, they begin to lose their fire for the Lord. That's in the first hundred years of the church. And so, and then it moves on. It goes into the uh, of Smyrna. Smyrna is a, is a time where they were persecuted, but there was a time of incredible persecution that came down upon the church. That age kind of can be represented from somewhere around A.D. 100 to A.D. 313 where persecution upon the church was incredible. I mean, to a point where you thought the church was going to be done away with. It's gone. And then you move on into Sardis and, and uh, uh, you, you look at that and, I'm sorry, into Pergamos. Pergamos is a picture of, uh, well, the Roman Catholicism. Historical. I mean, the things that Jesus describes of the Church of Pergamos talks about, you know, basically a an homage or a bowing down to a woman. And and the the, the Roman Catholic Church has a has an unhealthy view of Mary. I don't mean to offend anybody, but but the point is is that Mary gets a bad rap in the Protestant Church. Here's the thing. Mary is a blessed woman. 
But Mary was not someone to worship. And Mary is not to be one that is supposed to be worshipped. I don't have time to go through all of these, but you know, Roman Catholicism and then uh, the Church of Sardis is, is kind of the Protestant Reformation. That you know, is from 1520s all the way up to the present. The Church of Philadelphia, you know, from 1700s up to the rapture of the church. Laodicea, that's the, the People's Right Church. The People's Rights Church. That's the modern liberal church. That's the church that is just running rampant, especially in our country right now Jesus says you know I wish you were hot or cold but you're lukewarm you make me want to vomit and and so you have seven different churches they deal with actual churches but I believe that they also deal with historical a historical time frame of the church and many of them are still working even to this day But then there's a third application. I believe that there's an individual application. You personally identify with one of these churches. A lot of us love to go, well, I'm of Philadelphia, and I hope and pray you are. But you might not be. And so as you look through these churches, you you can identify with one of these. You ask the Lord, Lord, which one do I identify with the most? And if there's an area, maybe, maybe it's Ephesus. Maybe the Lord is going to say, hey, you, you, you left your first love. Hey, wow, Lord, I guess I am a part of that church. Lord, help me to get out of that church. Get me to the right place. Get me to the right church. Reignite that fire that I have within me. You see, half the job's done when you find out which church you belong to. Now it's, the ball's in your court. Are you going to ask the Lord to get you out of that church? If you're in a church that is not, and God forbid you're in Laodicea. But here's the thing. That's the things that are. I got to finish. The things which you have seen is the past. The things which are is chapters two and three, the seven churches. It's the church age. When the church age is done, and do you know when the church age is done? The church age is over when the church is raptured from the earth. Does that make sense? When the church is raptured from the church from the from the earth, there's no more church. You mean that this building is going to go? No, that's a wrong view that you have that a church is a building. Oh, there's such beautiful cathedrals out there. You're saying that those things are going to be raptured up too? No, I'm not talking about buildings. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about individuals because a building doesn't make up a church. It's the individual lives that have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is the church. Those are the foundation stones of the church. And you are, if you're a Christian, you are one of those foundation stones. And so when, when the rapture happens and you and I are called up home and we take off and we're gone. I don't know if our clothes stay or if they go with us. I don't know. I don't care. But here's the thing. When we're gone, the church is gone. And I have no doubt that some people are going to show up here on a Sunday morning and wonder, where is everyone? I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of churches that are still going to be pretty full out there. 
I think that there's going to be a lot of pulpits that are still going to be having pastors preaching, explaining away why some of these churches are gone. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know that the enemy is going to come up with a lie that is going to explain away why so many people have left this planet. He's going to come up with a reason. That's the Antichrist. He's going to come up with a reason. And people are going to buy it. It's going to deceive people. And they're going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. It is so good for them to be gone. Because the enemy cannot wait for us to be gone, the church. He just doesn't know what day it's going to happen. So the things which you've seen... Revelation 1, the things which are, Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says, and I've got to finish with this, and the things which will take place after this. That's the third point. What's interesting is that that word after this in the Greek is, in the Greek is meta-tauta. Meta-tauta, two words, meta-tauta, which means after these things. After these things. So Jesus says to John, I want you to write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So you've seen the the past. You're seeing the future, or you're seeing the present. You're in the church age. But let me tell you what's going to happen after the church age. After what things? After the church. After the church. Why do I believe that that's that? Because if you were to turn with me to chapter 4, into chapter 4, the very first words of our divine outline, I believe, in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 4 begins with meta-tauta. After these things. This is what begins the future. This is what begins the end times. But where's the church? Jesus says the church is gone. We're not talking about the church anymore. The church isn't here anymore. The church is gone. The church is raptured. After these things. After what things? After the church age. How do I know that the church is going to be gone? I don't know. Let's just continue to read. It says, I look, John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Amen. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, as Ross just said, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, the throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Here's the thing. John was raptured into heaven at that moment, spiritually at the time, but he was taken. After what things? After these things, after the church age. I saw when the church age ended, I saw that there was a door open in heaven and a voice and a trumpet said, come up here. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this. Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who've died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in, in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. What are we talking about? Paul is saying until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. We will by no means precede those who are dead for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up or raptured up together with them in the air in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place. Immediately I was in the spirit. I was in the presence of the Lord. It's the rapture of the church. It's gone. After chapter 4, verse 1, the church is not spoken of in the rest of the book of Revelation until you reach into chapter 21. That's when we begin to be spoken of again. I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture view of the end times. I believe that the next thing on the agenda for us is to hear a voice, to hear a loud trumpet, and that voice saying, come up here. Come up here. Time to be raptured. And off we go. And then the church age is done. And then the Antichrist will be revealed. Paul writing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says that let no one deceive you by any means for that day, what day? The day of Christ's return will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We're talking about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, Paul says, I wrote, I told you about these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed. He is in the Antichrist may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, restrains what? The, the, the Antichrist from coming on the scene. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Once he's taken out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will eventually consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now that's going to be wild. But that's not we're talk, what, we're, what, what I want to talk about right now. There's something that is restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit that is living within you and I. We are the restraining effect upon Satan 
from revealing his antichrist. But when the church is taken out of here, there's nothing restraining him any longer. You and I are gone. The Holy Spirit isn't residing in anybody at that time. We're all gone. And now what you have is a world that does not have a relationship with Jesus. Hence, the beginning of God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. There's nobody saved here at the time. Now, there will be people that will get saved in the tribulation period. We call them tribulation saints, but that's for another study. Hopefully, this has helped a little bit to tell you why I believe in the tri- that why I believe that we aren't going to be here for the tribulation period. And if you be so kind, listen, understand this. We're going to talk about here next week about horns and things like that because we have some questions from some people asking, hey, what are the horns? What are the you know ten toes? What are what are all these things? What's the little horn that comes up? What is this in the book of Daniel? And we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But here's the thing. Know this. It says in the tribulation time, in this time that this Antichrist is revealed and he's wielding his executive power, his spiritual power upon the face of this earth, he will make war with the saints and he will prevail against them. Daniel chapter 7 verse 21. He will will prevail. But that is absolutely contrary to what Jesus said to Peter. I'm going to leave you with this. You remember Jesus says, hey, who do people say that I am? One said, hey, you're some say you're, you're, you're Elijah. Uh, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, they said. Jesus said, who do you think I am, though? But who do you think I am? And Peter didn't miss a beat, man. Peter was the guy that was always there quick with an answer. He goes, oh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. We know you. Uh, we know who you are. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, you listened. You heard. You're listening to his voice. He revealed it to you, not your own flesh and blood. My Father gave those words to you. You spoke them. Good job, Pete. And Peter, the words that you spoke, your name is Petras. Petras little stone little crumb little sand pebble that's what Peter's name means and they were up there in uh, uh, Banyas up in uh, Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Israel at the time up there uh, you know amongst the there's a there's a a stream or a a a, a, what do they call it? A, a natural occurring water that comes out of the ground? A spring, thank you. A spring that comes out of the ground right up there in front of this massive stone hill. Caesarea Philippi. It's known as that. I got a little stone over in my office. I should have brought it over. 
from standing in front of that big stone. That the name of the place today is called Banyas. It's a it's a it's a takeoff of the name Panyas because there's in this big stone there's this big hole like a big tunnel in there and and this big tunnel or this big hole this big cavernous hole that's in this big stone there. Uh, uh, the Greeks said that Pan is the god of holes. And so they named the place Panius. It has kind of degrade, degraded to a name called Banius. They've named it Banius, but it was the god of holes, you know? But in, when Jesus was standing there, it was called Caesarea Philippi, okay? And so here he is in Caesarea Philippi, and Peter makes this huge confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I believe Jesus probably reached down and picked up a little stone, and he's kind of holding it in his hand, and he says, you know, Peter, you're like this little stone. You're just a little stone. But it's upon this rock this rock of a statement that you just made that I'm going to build my church. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's exactly what Christ was saying. Upon this confession, I will build my church. Then what does he say? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to remind you what it said in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, that this little horn who is the Antichrist is going to be making war with the saints and prevailing against them. If we're in the, if we're in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is prevailing against us, which makes Jesus a liar because he says the gates of hell will not prevail against you. We're not here, gang. We're out. And I thank God for that. That's God judging a Christ-rejecting world. I've already been judged. You've already been judged. You might not think it's fair. You might think that we're getting out easy. And you know what? We are. But it's not easy. It's easy on us, but it wasn't easy on God. He turned us back on His Son while He took your sin and my sin upon His shoulders. Our sin upon Him, it cost God everything He had to secure your salvation and my salvation. It's not easy. It is the most priceless gift that has ever been offered to you. And if you've accepted it, you're not going to be here for the tribulation. I hope that that made some sense and and hopefully cleared up some things in some hearts and minds. And so, Lord, thank you for today. Um, I pray, Lord, that this has made sense. I hope that I haven't confused the matters anymore. I pray, Lord, that we can have confidence knowing that If the rapture happened today, we're out. We're gone. Unless, of course, there are some that don't have that relationship with you. They've heard this message. They've heard what I said at the beginning. They've heard even right here towards the end about you taking our sin upon your shoulders. And yet, they have been playing church. They've been playing religion. They've been playing Christian for years. Maybe 40, 50, 60 years. I don't know. Maybe a month. Maybe two months. I don't know. However long it is that we're playing a game, God, I don't want to play anymore. Maybe there's somebody listening right now or somebody in this room that has heard that and you're saying, I don't want to play this game anymore. I want, my, I want to make sure that I have a relationship with Christ. 
This is not just coincidence that we can go from Old Testament to New Testament and, and see things that were written 4,000 years ago and see things that are, are happening today of what was spoken of back then. This is more accurate than, than a Timex wristwatch. This is crazy. This is wild. And being that it's true, I, I want to know that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that I have a relationship with Jesus. I want to know that I actually have a job to do for the remainder of my days here on the earth. And so God, right now, I just lift up anybody who doesn't have that relationship with you. And, and God, I, I just call them on the carpet right now. God, I pray that they cry out to you right now. That they ask you, God, to come into their heart. They recognize their sin is before you. They recognize the game that they've been playing. Maybe there's somebody that hasn't been playing a game, but they've heard this for the very first time. And they're coming before you right now and asking you to forgive them. You, God, did the only thing that you could do to secure our salvation, to secure our release from the penalty that is coming down upon this God and Christ-rejecting world. You did the only thing that could happen. You offered yourself in our place. And so therefore, Lord, those who are not saved, may they simply just cry out to you and say, Lord, save my soul. Save me. There's no way I'm getting to heaven based upon my own things that I've done. I believe that you took my sin upon your shoulders, Jesus, and you died on the cross for me. God, your father turned his back on you because you had my sin upon your shoulders. God, I'm so sorry. I personalized that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in my own life today. That was my sin that was hanging him on the cross. That was my sin that caused his father's eyes to turn away from him. It was my sin that caused him to breathe his last. It was my sin. But it was necessary. God, I'm so sorry that it had to be necessary, but I'm also so blessed that you love me so much that you would do and go to such great lengths simply to lay a gift of salvation before me to either receive it or reject it. And today I receive it. My sin, I give it to you, Lord. And I'm sorry that it looks so ugly. I'm sorry that it's so vile. I take your forgiveness. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your love. I want to be your family. I want to be your child. Make me new. Make me that man. Make me that woman that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become brand new. Lord, make me new. Because of you. Not because of me, but because of you. I give you my life. You gave your life for me. I give you my life in return. Now, Lord, save my soul. 
Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my Savior. Be my friend. Be my lead. Be my guide. Show me from this day forward what it is that you want me to do. And may I do it to my greatest ability in the spirit and the power that you bestow upon me. Help me, Lord, not to fear. Help me, Lord, not to cower because of how powerful that I think this world is. It's nothing compared to you. You are so much greater than anything that this world can throw at us. Even if Satan himself throws himself at us individually, you're far greater than anything that Satan would ever be able to throw at us. I rest in you, Lord. I accept your salvation. Now, Lord, make me fit for your master's use. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So, did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941-926-3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.